All right, soccer freaks. This is ATL on Fire, the podcast. We're going to be talking all things Atlanta United Football Club. So sit back, buckle up, and enjoy. everybody thank you uh for coming back to the show we are uh atl on fire we know uh a little bit about the mls we know a good bit about atlanta united but we know a lot about soccer and we're going to talk about it all and we are thrilled to have an awesome guest on the show today we've got the uh radio commentary um uh, color commentary from 92.9 the game jason longshore and of course i'm joined with uh, Dave Katz, my co-host, and just want to say, Jason, thank you uh, so much for making time and uh, jumping on to answer a few questions for us. No, thanks for reaching out. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming. Yeah. And um, in terms of uh, how people can find you, you've, you're on Twitter, you've got your own uh, podcast. How can people find you online? Yeah, Longshoe on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, I'm on Facebook a little bit, but not too much. Um, mm-hmm. Soccer Down Here is our show. We're live on Twitch uh, most mornings at 9 o'clock um, or thereabouts. Um, we have some other shows that go up as podcasts as well. Uh, you can subscribe via your favorite podcatcher. And a lot of Atlanta United, but not solely Atlanta United. We get into MLS. We get into soccer worldwide, um, whatever kind of strikes our fancy on, on a given show. You never know what we'll be getting into. So you two talk about it all. <laughs> we try. We try. And, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly read up on, on your history and, and being somebody who's just a big advocate of soccer here in the Atlanta community. I grew up in Roswell, uh, as we've talked about in our podcast. And, you know, if you could just give a brief kind of history of – how you've um, come to be kind of the voice of Atlanta United Soccer on the radio and uh, your involvement and excitement around around the team. I mean, for me, um, a lot of right place at the right time. Uh, a lot of it comes down to my work with soccer in the streets. I, I worked with uh, them for 10 years, nonprofit based in Atlanta that uses soccer to, to better the lives of disadvantaged kids um, and, and provide them access to not just playing, but also life skills that will benefit them uh, on and off the field. Yeah, we had a uh, podcast about soccer in the streets with one of the board members earlier. So, yeah, our our podcast listeners are big fans of soccer in the streets. Very, very cool. Um, They were around long before I was there and are are still going really, really strong. It's awesome to see their success, and I try to help out wherever I can. But when I was there, uh, the last big role I had was chief development officer, and it coincided with the time that Atlanta United was getting started. We had a relationship with the Blank Family Foundation, uh, funding relationship, but also just a best practices kind of relationship. They're such a great nonprofit that you know gives a ton of money to a ton of different organizations all over the metro area, but also more than that, they, they try to help them in other ways as well. And 
we built a relationship as, as a soccer serving organization. And when Atlanta United started, um, it was something that they could lean on to kind of get things rolling and get out into the community and had, you know, a, a ready and willing partner to work with. So got to know Darren, got to know Carlos when they both came to town. And when the radio deal came about, it was right before the home opener in 2017. I had done one of the preseason games over in Charleston for the ESPN coastal stations down in South Georgia and in Hilton head. And when the deal was coming together, uh, they reached out and wanted to hear the tape. And <laughs> the Thursday before the Sunday home opener, uh, I got the call that they needed a color commentator and they, they offered me the role and I, I haven't given it up since. So podcaster to uh 92, nine, the game commentator, there's hope for us all. <laughs> it <can> happen. <laughs> Yeah, no, we, uh, we we definitely enjoy listening to you on, you know, all the, the 92.9, the game, uh, you know, shows that are out there, Dukes and Bell and, and the morning show. I think you do a great job of bringing kind of Atlanta, Atlanta United um, in, information to uh, to the fans and, and appreciate the work that you do. So, you know, um, that brings me to, so obviously you were following soccer, podcasting about soccer before Atlanta United, um, and really before soccer was really popular in Atlanta. So I guess my first question would be, um, were you amazed by the support for Atlanta United or did you expect it? I expected it, but I thought it might take more time. I mean, I, I had, I grew up playing in the Atlanta area. I worked for the Atlanta ruckus back in the day when I was in college, uh, the pro team yeah. that preceded the silverbacks. Right. Uh, I worked with the silverbacks, uh, first for soccer in the street stuff. And in the, the second version of the silverbacks in the North American soccer league did game days, helped run the reserve team. And so I was around it and I knew what it could be. And when Atlanta United launched, I think they did a couple of things that were really, really important. They, didn't just try to appeal to the soccer community. They, they tried to appeal to the sports community in Atlanta. And I think Arthur Blank did something that was critical. And he didn't make Atlanta United, or even before they had a name, MLS Atlanta, he didn't make it feel secondary to the Atlanta Falcons. He, he put it as, as an equal. And I think that was a really important step because when, when we get to travel and, and see other cities around the league, there, there's great soccer cities all over this country. I think the special thing about Atlanta is how welcoming it is to new fans and how many fans, you know, their first interaction with soccer is from Atlanta United. I think in a lot of other cities, it's people who grew up playing, you know, maybe they're from other countries, maybe their parents played. There, there, there's longtime soccer cultures in some of these other cities, and there is here too, but there's also an influx of brand new fans who are excited because it's been fun. It's been mm -hmm. a, a cool brand, and it has really brought the city together. And you, you, it's such a, a hard thing to replicate, and I think that the, the Charlottes and the St. Louises and, and other cities that are getting into pro soccer Right. have to try to figure out what that looks like in their community. But Arthur Blank and Atlanta United and just the, the city of Atlanta and the soccer fans in Atlanta have really done it the right way and helped grow the game by bringing new people to the party. So it's obviously hard to replicate, but it's also very difficult to sustain. So do you think that the club is still doing things um, to keep the support? Or are there things that they could be doing better to, to, to maintain the support? 
I think once you get established, it's about winning. I mean, ultimately, that that's going to be the most important thing. And I mean, even in the conversations we're hearing right now from people, a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about style and wanting the team to play a certain way. I think right now people just want to see, you know, goals and wins. And ultimately, that's going to drive the success. I mean, it's, it's just how professional sports are. You know, I, I think in soccer, we always worry that, that fans are going to go away because mm -hmm. over the years they have. I mean, when, when you look at the old NASL sure. and the way it was run, they couldn't sustain it because it was poorly organized and they didn't plant those seeds. Well, now you've got seeds planted. And I, I think for Atlanta United, you know, to keep those new fans, it's going to be about winning games and, and winning trophies. I think the, the soccer fans that are here and are established and those new fans that have turned into like hardcore fans like, like us who will watch the Premier League and, and watch the league in Argentina and watch Mexico and, you know, support all of it and get into all of it. I think they're hooked. And I think they're going to be the ones that are going to argue with us on podcasts about, you know, what they like, what they don't like. These, those, those fans aren't going away. I think it's the new fans and the casual fans. You have to turn them into the hardcore fans. And ultimately you do that through those experiences that we had in 2018 and 2019 with trophies and wins and celebrations. We talked about some, also some, what, what I consider sort of second level of, um, progression of being a fan so for example um you know the initial crowd everybody was standing and now they're sitting a little bit with the exception of the supporter section or are we even talk a lot about how the supporter section so vocal but haven't progressed to having individual chants about players um so how do you feel about that secondary culture that happens at a club that's been around a long time that's, that's about sustainable? I think it's always kind of refreshing itself. And, you know, I've, I've been around the supporter culture a decent bit. I was uh, around uh, getting Terminus Legion started back in the day as, as everybody was figuring it out. I was more of a sounding board and helping connect it with soccer in the streets and, and giving back to the community. But, it's hard because people who, who put their, their passion and their time and their energy into organizing these groups, you know, they get burned out and they, they can't do it, you know, for, for decades upon decades. So then new people come in and it starts to take different spins. And I think sometimes it just takes time to gel. You know, it's still a young supporters culture here in Atlanta. And I think everybody's out what Atlanta's spin is. And that's a hard thing to do because, you know, I, I've loved how getting to hear at most of the stadiums in the league, there's still a few of the new ones that we haven't seen yet. I, I think that Atlanta sounds like Atlanta. I, I think at times there's that reach to try to bring, you know, simple things in to get more of the stadium, like singing and chanting and, and joining in. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to see the, the supporters continue to go down those roads that make it unique. How was, you know, how was like, the how was the new uh, Cincinnati venue that you were at awesome. last Wednesday, right? Awesome. Uh, great stadium. Um, Cincinnati is an underrated away day anyway. Like I highly recommend if you're looking for a trip to make next year, like mm -hmm. pick the Cincinnati yeah. week if, if that's going to happen again, because it's a, you know, a big city, but not giant. Like there's cool stuff all over. It's really cool history. Um, the stadium's amazing. Like it's, <laughs> it's a 20, 6,000 yeah. seater. 
So like there were 23,000 in there on a Wednesday night and it was loud and intense. Um, I love it. And I think Cincinnati is, is, you know, a couple of years behind us in terms of what their supporters culture sounds like. You know, I think the, the, er, the easy thing to do is to replicate chance you hear, like, especially in the premier league for, for English speaking fans. And I get it and I understand it. I, I love where it progresses past that. And you hear different, different teams, different fan bases, different cities sound like their city or, or do something unique or put yeah. their own spin on things. And I think Atlanta's done a pretty good job of that. And I think they can continue to, to go down that road even deeper. Yeah. So, um, you know, Dave and I obviously aren't close to the the club and, you know, the, the team as much as, as you are. Um, there's obviously been a lot of talk after the, the Heinze firing. Um, you've kind of seen the culture go through the shifts from Tata to Frank DeBoer to the, the glass era. Now, you know, to Heinze and, and, and Rob Valentino. Uh, I'm just curious, like what, what is your, um, do you have any opinion on how that's affected the overall culture of just the organization in the building from like the equipment manager to, to whomever. And does the new VP play a big role in trying to shift maybe some of the things that weren't, weren't correct? Yeah. I'll be curious to see the role of the new VP and, and how, how it might be different than that role has been in the past. And we really won't know until they get started, which won't be until next month. So I'm, I'm curious to see what that looks like. Um, you know, this past year has been a weird one because we haven't been around the team very much. Yeah. I mean, even when we got to call right, games right. last year, we were on the third level of the bends and we could not go below that when the players were on the field <laughs> because <laughs> of the, the different tiers and testing procedures right. and stuff. I mean, for example, to travel right now, uh, we have to go through, you know, not quite the full testing protocol that the league was doing in the past, but we have to go into the testing protocol to be able to travel with the team. Right. So it's uh, it's still kind of weird because there's there's still like you know some pretty big boundaries because of protocols and stuff. Um, I got the sense from talking to folks in Cincinnati that you know a lot of the talk with with Gabriel Heinze and and training sessions being intense and and the the water thing and and those <laughs> kinds of issues weren't really the issues. I right. think there was a lot of respect that the players and staff and, and people around had for Gabriel Heinze as a coach, right? Like actually his soccer ideas, they, they really liked it. He was passionate about it and because the team was well-prepared, well-coached. He put everything into it. I don't think there's any question about that. I think the problems that, that Heinze had were more of the managerial side as opposed to the coaching side. I think, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it was, you know, understanding the American soccer culture and how managers or coaches have more media responsibilities than they do in some other countries. Um, I don't think Gabriel really enjoyed that stuff. He didn't in Argentina, so right. it, he definitely <laughs> you know, didn't come here and, and have a, a 360 on it. And that's a problem. And, you know, things like the, the social media content we've seen, you know, increase since since he was dismissed and. We've seen some of those like mic'd up segments that, that the social team has put out. We've seen those come back. Um, we've seen more media availabilities, frankly. I mean, we, we've seen some of those things that weren't happening before. And it's, it's always going to be hard to know exactly because when he took over, there were more protocols that were blocking some of that stuff. You know, right, I mean, last right. year, people, I think, got frustrated with 
with social media when the team wasn't doing well and and maybe fans on the outside didn't understand that the social media team was very limited in what they right, could even right. go out to shoot mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. they had like i think one person who uh, was eventually admitted into the protocol to be able to to film stuff uh, on on practice days but hmm. you know, for the longest time i mean they had to stay away from everybody it's it, this past year has been crazy to run professional sports and it's just amazing that it's happened um, and i'm really thankful that it has because i think it's helped keep a lot of people you know with some form of normalcy with these games going on right. it did for me you know just having games and having things to look forward to it was yeah. big but it had an effect on everything. And I think that combined with, with Heinze really struggling to, to build those relationships and, and maybe even not understanding the need to do it and not really getting that how soccer in the United States is very different than in Argentina. It felt like a breath of fresh air kind of came over the group with Rob Valentino coming in, who has been there for a long time. He came in in 2018 with Atlanta United 2. He's part of Frank DeBoer's staff. He ended up becoming part of Gabriel Heinze's staff, which was not the idea. Hmm. He was supposed to be in a separate role, but he ended up becoming part of the staff because of the respect that that staff had for him and the work that he put in to help them. So, I mean, I think that says a lot about it because, I mean, he had nothing to do with them before they got here and they looked at him as one of the group. So I think the players immediately responded to him. I mean, we've heard him in the, the post-game comments and in the pre-game comments. He's really trying to rally this group. And I think he's made some subtle tweaks on the field as well. I, I hope that they get some wins. I hope they get some goals for him. Yeah. Because I know they're, they're playing hard for Rob Valentino. And I know they want him to do well. So we talked a lot about in the podcast about how we expected Atlanta United to be a selling club in particular with this motive of, you know, buying young South Americans and selling them on. But I think, you know, the idea in our, at least in our minds was that for players, it might be a two year stopover on the way to Europe, but the continuity would come from the front office, from the coaching. And obviously not by any design that, that really hasn't happened. Um, and so I guess my question for you is, um, you know, based on that experience, um, do you think that Atlanta United, you know, in, in going after high profile coaches who may not want to stay here long term, whether that's a good idea? And and what do you think that means for the next hire? That's interesting. I mean, this hiring process is so different because. It's mid-season and results will be, I think, a bigger priority in the short term than they've ever been before. So you know, maybe that changes the, the, the list of, of priorities, of responsibilities, of, of what you're looking for. I'll be curious to see you know, who this next manager is going to be. I, I think you're, you're on point with the idea about Atlanta United from the get-go. I think it was about being a club that would spend to bring in players, but would sell and, and bring in revenue that way and continue to grow it. When, when you look at the MLS rules and you dig into them a bit, if you sell players and sell players at profits, like it, it helps you with your salary cap. It's, it's a very important tool to have to build a better and better team. Um, I think they've done a little bit of that. They haven't done maybe as much as they would have liked. And, and Barco was probably the one that, that people will zero in on. That was a mm-hmm. bold move to make going into 2018 to bring in a young player that a lot of European clubs were looking at. And he's had a lot of injuries and he's had a lot of bad luck go against him. I hope that he has a 
continues to have a good Olympics. Yeah. He's played well in his first two games, and, mm-hmm. and I hope that a good opportunity comes for him because he's getting towards the end of a contract, and it's probably best for that to happen at some point. But I, I don't know if the coaching aspect was intended to be part of the continuity. I think the front office was. I think mm-hmm. the academy is. I think the second team is. And I do think you'll see first-team guys that maybe are separate from that group. And, and I look at somebody like Anton Walks right now, Anton is a player who you know, was here on loan in year one. Yeah. Um, he missed the, the 18 and 19 years and came back after his time at Portsmouth. And he's a different player. And I don't think he's a player who will, will get a big money transfer to, to Europe. But I think he's a guy who could be here for a long period of time and be some of that continuity. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see academy guys be in that situation too. You know, not every academy player is intended to be a George Bellow who will, will have that opportunity sooner rather than later to, to play in a big club in Europe. I think sooner, cause I think he's been brilliant this last year, especially, but there's going to be academy players who come through and are, you know, I'm trying to think of the touchstones in MLS, a guy like Sean Davis with New York Red Bulls, who mm-hmm. ha- has been there for six, seven years as captain, right. 28 years old, you know, uh, a guy who's going to play, you know, hundreds of games for the club, a, a Kyle Beckerman at RSL, you know, guys like that, that I think are going to be that continuity and, and we're still so young in it, you know, and there has been a decent bit of turnover. Those guys will emerge. I, I think Anton could end up being one of those guys right so now. So you see it guys. more as an anchoring, you know, couple players yeah. as the other players come through rather than a coach, you know, like, so, you know, we talked about, for example, do you want to go out and get a young American coach or an MLS experience coach who might be here more like five or 10 years as opposed to two. But I think what you're arguing is maybe the, the players on the field, there could be a couple of yeah. players of more continuity veteran, like a Parkhurst and Lorenowitz that, you know, that was the formula that seemed to work with a lot of the younger talent that uh, was obviously on the field as well in 2018. Yeah. Uh, helped anchor it. Yeah. I could see a coach be here longer. I mean, I could see that happen. And I think for this tire, especially you're looking at somebody who fits the philosophy and you know it's about controlling games it's about wanting the ball it's about attacking and being proactive rather than reactive and i think you can do that in a bunch of different ways and if the right hire now with somebody with mls experience and somebody who might be here for you know more than two years maybe in the three four years kind of reign or, or even longer great I, I don't think they're hiring to hire somebody to be here for 10 years, Mm -hmm. but I don't think they're hiring to have somebody here for only two years either. You know what I mean? Like, I think it hasn't worked out with Tata, who was a special hire to get things off the ground. (laughs) Sure. I don't get the, the sense that Frank was hired to be here for, you know, as, as short of a period as he was, I think he was intended to be here for longer. It didn't work out after, you know, we got into the pandemic and it didn't work out after the MLS's back tournament. Uh, Heinze was probably more of a, a shorter term just because he's yeah. younger in his career. And that's right. how he worked generally, you know, two and a half years is the longest that he's hmm. been anywhere in his career. So, you know, yeah. I, I think it depends on who's available and in what direction they go right now. I was surprised to hear Darren Eels on the, <clears throat> on the television broadcast talking about how they're primarily focusing on just available coaches as opposed to even thinking about going in after the high-profile bid or someone who's already under contract. What do you, yeah. do you have any thoughts about that? A few people have asked about that. And I think, to me, what I take away from that is that 
they want to get somebody in quickly. And if you're, you're looking at trying to get somebody who is under contract somewhere, that's going to be a process. And sometimes it can be a long one to get them out of their contract or, you know, if they're in Europe, you're in the, depending on what country you're in, you're either at the beginning of your preseason or you're getting ready for your season to start here very soon. So it's, it's hard to get somebody who's in that situation who's a head coach. I mean, maybe there's an assistant somewhere that you might be able to pry away, mm-hmm. but to get somebody in the fastest, I, I think you're looking at guys who are currently available and, and can walk in the door. And, you know, there's some interesting names out there like that. I mean, Dome Tarant is a name that I've mentioned a few times. He was at New York City and did very well. He's Pep Guardiola's assistant at right. Barcelona, at Bayern, at Manchester City. I think his time at New York City was the, the best the club's ever been. Um, and I think he fits the, the style and the philosophy in the current roster. Uh, Gennaro Gattuso, if you're talking about a bigger name, you know, hmm. he, he had success at Napoli. And I thought the team played really hard for him there. I, I liked how that team looked. It's a team that I, I follow to a decent level in Serie A. Um, Antonio Conte, probably not the fit for him. I don't <laughs> think stylistically either. But uh, there's there's some interesting names out there that are available right now that I think are of a really good level and good quality. Well, you're talking big names, so that suggests that, you know, you're thinking along the lines that it will continue to be, you know, high-profile coaches. I think they want somebody who who can come in and win. Yeah. I, I think that's the idea, and, and that's, that's just, you know, my speculation is I, I feel like with what Darren and Carlos have said and, and the roster that I do think is here when it's full strength, this is a team that can and should win. And uh, I think they're going to hire somebody who is not coming in to learn on the job, but somebody who can win games straight away. I wanted to shift slightly the gears and, and ask you about um, commentary on the radio. Um, obviously, it's very difficult. to You have to describe so many things. Um, <laughs> so I wanted you to, to tell us about how you've adjusted to that and also about um, you know, balancing the focus as a, you know, on the Atlanta United team versus being a little bit more impartial, um, and how you feel about that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. This is a stuff that we talk about all the time and I'll, I'll start from the radio versus TV side of it. Um, cause I've done work with, uh, ESPN plus with Atlanta United two games, and I've done some college games that have been there and it is a different feel. Um, I don't think it needs to be maybe as different as it is at times in English language, Mm -hmm. because if you listen to a game in Spanish on the radio and you watch a game in Spanish on TV, it's not all that dramatically different. Um, In English it is. And I think the idea is that in English you lay out a whole lot more. And I think there's a balance to be found with it. You know, the times that I've done games with, with Kevin Egan, I think we found a pretty good in-between level where, you know, we're, we're into it. We're, we're very descriptive. We're trying to give as much information as we can, but there's moments where, you know, the, the, the pictures speak for themselves and, and you try to find that balance. Yeah, I'm always um, wondering whether you need to tell people they're going left to right or you need to describe the, the kit that much or, you know, or is it just Atlanta United is attacking the goal, you know? Um. Yeah, I think for me, like when I do games on a stream, especially whether it's a college game or a NPSL or, or summer league game, or high school games that we've done, I try to mention who's on the ball as much as possible from a TV perspective when I'm doing play by play. Um, I try to mention 
who is on the ball. So it, it becomes less descriptive and more identification at times. Um, and that's maybe the balance that I try to strike between the, the Spanish language calls that I really enjoy and I love the passion. And I try to emulate that as much as I'm able to with, I think, what is accepted in, in English language and what's more common. Um, radio is a completely different animal. And I, I love radio and I'm really lucky to work with Mike Conti on radio, who is just incredible at painting the picture. And, right. and when you listen to him and, you know, I try to do it in, in games where I can, like, I try to kind of close my eyes and, and listen to him describe what's happening. And I, I know what's going on. When I open my eyes back up, I know exactly what's going on on the field. Mm-hmm. He's so good at the where, the who, the what, like those things, right. he nails it. And that's such a key with radio to paint that picture in your mind. I try to, to color in the gaps and I try to get a lot of the, the why and the how and, and the emotion. And that's been a big thing that I've talked to about, or I've talked to with a lot of commentators over the last year is calling games from empty venues has been the weirdest thing. <laughs> and it, it's been yeah. really weird for us in Atlanta where we're so used to hearing the 17s right. and how loud it gets. And you, you have to lay out at times because you can't yell over it. And then you go to the reverse. And, and I did a game on TV last year and it's so eerie at times because you get used to expecting a roar from the crowd or a reaction from the crowd and it doesn't happen. And, and you're kind of trying to figure out like, well, how do I do this here? Do I want just dead air because I would normally lay out and the crowd would be going nuts or do I just keep going and, and trying to fill that space? And I don't know if there's a right answer. You know, I mean, we're lucky now that hopefully we're not going to call too many more games behind closed doors ever again. I, I really hope we don't have to do that ever again, but um, it's a weird thing. And I think doing radio really helped me with that because you have to fill space so much on radio, right? There's nothing to lay out for except for crowd noise that, yeah. that you let go, but that's really momentary with radio. So I, I enjoy with Mike because I think we do as as strong of an English language um, style of Spanish language commentary. Like we try to be very passionate. We try to be emotional and, and capture that side of it um, from a very Atlanta United perspective for radio, because I think radio lends itself to that more than, than TV does, which mm-hmm. is a different feel. Um, I grew up listening to Larry Munson call Georgia football. Mm-hmm. I grew up listening to Steve Holman call the Atlanta Hawks. Um, you know, I, I think you, if you've grown up listening to sports on the radio in, in this region, you kind of expect a, you know, I think Homer gets a, a negative <laughs> connotation, right. but from a radio perspective and it's not a national radio call. I mean, we're the Atlanta United radio call. Right. I think it'd be out of place if we tried to do it any other way. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, we get upset about things and we get excited about things and, you know, we have fun with it, but it's definitely a very Atlanta call. And what's been, you know, pretty cool to, to hear is, you know, when we get simulcast on, on Sirius XM FC, for example, they've never said anything to us about the way we call games or anything. They, they keep picking our games because they know one, it's generally going to be an entertaining game because that's the, what Atlanta tries to do 
but also they know the way we we call the game and some people love it some people probably don't like it if it's their team that we're playing against (laughs) but they listen even if they don't like it because then they kind of start rooting against us you know what i mean (laughs) so it's getting that passion about it i love listening to hometown calls because it captures something that i think a completely straight neutral call just can't a lot of times so jason um going back to bringing in young young talent um in kind of current events there's a a little bit of rumor out there around uh, ezekiel barco's teammate uh tiago uh almada i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly but uh, i think philippe was reporting on that today that maybe uh, we're close to a deal there's is that uh, is there any truth to that? And do we think a player like that is needed right now uh, on the team? The reports out of Argentina are that it's a very, very close to a deal. Although there, there are some more recent reporting that Marseille and France is, is coming back in to try to get him. He had been linked with Marseille. I want to say in the last month or two, and it didn't happen. Marseille went into some different signings and, the French league's kind of weird right now in terms of revenues. They're, they're struggling a bit, but Marseille and PSG have spent money in the summer window and right. other clubs have not. So I don't know how much more money Marseille has to spend. And I don't know if they really need Almada at this point. Atlanta does. I think he's a player who, you know, people have, have maybe tried to, to paint him as the next Ezekiel Barco. Um, the next Marcelino Moreno, like he's different to me in that he's more of a natural goal scorer than those two. Uh, Those are two guys who can score goals, but didn't score a lot in Argentina. Almada in 50 starts in all competitions has 20 goals, um, 80 games uh, coming off the bench included. So he's a guy who hasn't always been in scoring positions. He's played on the wing some, he's played as a, a central attacking midfielder but he has a nose for goal. Um, I like what I've seen of him. Um, he's a player that I'm, I'm familiar with, but uh, I'm not like fully researched on the way I could see him fitting is as one of those central attacking midfielders, even playing as a, as a withdrawn forward at times, you could go three, five, two with him as a second forward. You could play him in the, the four, three, three that we've seen a lot this year. He could play out wide at times against certain opponents too. And, with the interplay of guys like Barco and Moreno and Almada, you've got three guys who all of them can pop up as wingers. All of them can pop up in, in scoring situations at the top of the 18 and and into the 18. So it'd be really interesting to see. Um, Probably going to take a pretty significant investment to get him. And the question would be, you know, from a cap perspective, and we don't know how much cap space there is, can you make it work? Uh, he's age eligible for the U22 initiative. The question would be the salary. And I think they could find a way to make it work because, you know, it's, it's misunderstood how much guys are paid in Argentina and in South America in general. And the salaries are not huge, especially yeah. for a young player like Almada, who's just turned 20. You know, he's probably not on a, a ton of money at the moment. So you could give him a hugely significant raise and still keep him under that threshold to count as a U22 initiative player. And that'd be a masterstroke if you could yeah. pull it off to get him to where he's only hitting 150,000 on your cap. Um, but you can spend whatever you need to on the transfer fee and keep a salary within whatever constraints they have. 
be fascinating to see if they can do it. He's, he's an incredibly talented player that a lot of people thought would be in Europe by now. But there's two aspects of that, right? So one is obviously the money involved and in, in all the MLS complicated rules. But the other aspect of it is, you know, he's, if he comes, he's clearly coming to play here and try to move on to Europe a la Almarone. And my question is, you know, with Barco, Moreno, Joseph Martinez, as the guys who are naturally in his position, um, where is the playing time going to be? I mean, obviously, we've really lacked for someone to back up Joseph Martinez, but it doesn't seem like you're going to buy a young hotshot from South America to back up Joseph Martinez. So does that imply that that one of those players would be on the move? Change of formation or... Not necessarily, because I think you can play all three of them, four if you want to include Joseph in the conversation, in a variety of formations. Um, We've seen 4-3-3 as the base this year, and I don't think that'll really deviate too much uh, as we go. You know, Barco can play as a left winger, Moreno and Almada can play as the two central midfielders in that behind Joseph. Um, Moreno could go out wide and Barco could come inside if you wanted to. You could play a, a three-five-two um, right. with Almada as a second forward, kind of playing withdrawn off of Joseph, with Barco and Moreno behind him. Um, there's different ways to make it work, and I'll be curious to see like how you find the right chemistry with that group. You know, it's good that Almada and Barco are playing together on the Argentine Olympic team right now. I think Moreno's a guy who can build chemistry with players around him. Um, mm. I think also, you know, you have to factor in that there's a chance, and I think it's maybe a little slim at the moment because we haven't heard any rumors on it, but there's a chance that Ezekiel Barco is sold in this window. Right. You know, he's coming towards the end of his contract. I think there's another year on it past this current season. And, you know, you want to get a deal done with him before he gets into that point where he can sign on a free and and leave on a, on a pre-contract kind of situation. So if he, you know, attracts attention after the Olympics, right. he could be here for just a very short period of time after the Olympics before moving on, or he could finish the year out here and then move on ahead of next year. Yeah. The timing strikes me, you know, with him being at the Olympics as a showcase, that's if there would be a time to, to attract interest and maybe get a little higher offer, it might be coming off of that. It's possible. And I've wondered how that would play out because the Olympics will be over if Argentina makes a run all the way to the final. It'd be over after the incoming window closes in MLS, um, which you could still sell, but you wouldn't be able to bring in a replacement immediately. Almada could be kind of a, a way you can bring in a replacement before he's gone officially and make it work. So there, there's some different ways to make this happen. And I think this is the kind of stuff that you, you bring in the new VP for who has been on the competition committee and, and that side of things with MLS and is going to know every way to stretch the salary cap and, and find that kind of space to make these things happen. So Jason, want to be respectful of your time. One final question for you that we asked all the guests that we have on the show. Um, this was a little, little uh, harder to answer of the second part in 2018 when we started our podcast the, the year after we won. But what is your favorite thing about Atlanta United? And what's the thing you hate the most about the club or anything around, surrounding it right now? Kind of what's the best and, and most frustrating thing maybe? Keep in mind that we invented this question when everything was going absolutely perfect and you couldn't find a thing to hate about Atlanta United, but go ahead. <laughs> um, 
what do I love the most? Uh, I love the it's it's I can't even describe really the feeling it is. Um, the last time I really felt it at Mercedes Benz uh, was Marcelino Moreno's late winter against Montreal. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a a level of noise and and it it almost like knocks me back a step at times when when the the building gets to that point and i've never had that at any other sporting event you it know it seems I mean, like pure joy <laughs> yeah it, it's such a unique feeling um and it can take on you know depending on the moment it can take on different feels i mean yeah. the the first time i i felt it was the draw against orlando in the last game at bobby dodd Mm -hmm. the the late goal from tito vialba to equalize and it was just a different feeling it wasn't like a goal celebration feeling it it was something completely different and when that happens it's just special it's it's like you want more of it it's like a drug um the thing that i i hate the most is i think the misunderstanding that some people have outside of Atlanta about what Atlanta soccer is. And, Hmm. you know, at times it'll be people saying like, you know, Oh, they're plastic. That that word gets thrown around a lot or like, Oh, it's an overnight success or they're not really like big fans and stuff like that. It, It drives me crazy because there was a, growing and thriving soccer community in Atlanta before Atlanta United. And it's one of the reasons that I think Atlanta United has been so, so, so successful because it had those seeds that had been planted going all the way back to the Atlanta Chiefs days in the late sixties. So they had something to grow from. So it's not an overnight success. It's not anything like that because it was happening here. This has taken it to a whole nother level. And I think Atlanta fans are the most invested fans in the league. And and maybe it's just because of the size. Maybe it's just because of, you know, the interactions that, that we all have with, with folks and in person and on social media and just how passionate people are. I think there are a lot of fan bases that wish they had that kind of feeling and, yeah, there's times when it's not a fun feeling when when games mm-hmm. are, are not getting the results you want or there's a frustration about a, a player or a tactic or whatever. It, it, it can be overwhelming and, and it, it can. Yeah, it cannot be fun. Yeah. But if you don't have that passion, that interest, that 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 just. That movement, you know, when the those good times happen, you don't get that feeling that we talked about that, that doesn't happen. So you have to be able to take both sides of it. And I think, you know, I'm always reminded of, of Glenn Davis in Houston, um, great commentator calls Houston dynamo games. He's on ESPN and mm-hmm. FS one a lot during the season as well. Every time I get a chance to catch up with him on his radio show, he, he always, before we go on, he's like, I am so envious of you because there's always something to talk about with Atlanta United. Like there's always <laughs> something going on and people want every little morsel of it. Right. And in Houston, like he does that trying to get people excited and it's a struggle because there's not as much going on and there's not that movement behind it. So 
Let's we're really see. lucky to have have both sides of it. It seemed like John Gallagher gave uh, Austin FC a little bit of that moment with their first, first goal. It seemed like there was a really good vibe uh, happening for the the fans there. I was actually really happy for them in a way to be able to experience that same kind of drug, like you're, like you're saying. I can't wait to get out there um, and see that venue. I can't wait to get up to Columbus here in a few weeks and see their new stadium. Uh, Minnesota, I think, will be the last one on the list that we haven't been to the new stadium when we were in Minnesota, they were still at the university of Minnesota Mm -hmm. and then Charlotte next year. I think Charlotte will be pretty special. I I really do. I think it's going to be an exciting, you know, rivalry between these two, but you know, it it comes back to, you talk about a feeling being in Orlando on Friday, you know, that's, that's a different kind of vibe, but (laughs) it is a special one to be in that stadium for um, because there's a lot of animosity from Orlando fans towards anything related to Atlanta. And right. we get our share of those comments said to us while we're on the radio and certain fingers thrown in our direction at times. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's, but that's that vibe. That's that kind of rush you get sometimes. It's, it's, it's a, we it's never talk about Orlando on this podcast. <laughs> never. <laughs> we got a little bit this week. Though. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time, and uh, and and we know you got a busy week preparing for the win over at Orlando, right? Uh, are you traveling down there? Yeah, we'll be heading down on, on Thursday, and really looking forward to calling that one from the venue, and yeah, looking forward to getting yelled at a little bit by their fans. <laughs> yeah, awesome. right on. Well, Jason, I uh, appreciate you joining again, and have a great week, and uh, give us some great color commentary for the win in Orlando. We'll do our best. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, Jason. Take care, man. All right, everybody. Welcome back to part two of the podcast. It was great having Jason on the show and giving us some perspective. And um, I think, you know, we'd love to now kind of get into some of the tactics under the current regime of Rob Valentino and talk about it all. So I know, Dave, I know you were... Uh, maybe on the verge of a rant here. I don't know. Um, tactics. Got, what are tactics? Wine, <laughs> wine in hand. and uh, ready. I'm fired up and ready to go, Mikey Dobbs. Um, well, so, you know, I mean, maybe we should start by saying that, uh, uh, and I'd like your opinion too, is this, uh, I thought in the last two games, um, you know, that overall the team looked better. What did you think? Uh, I agree. I felt like there was definitely a little bit more of a loose style of play while, um, you know, there was definitely moments where we felt very vulnerable in the back in both the Cincinnati and the, uh, the game on Saturday. Uh, why, why am I blanking? Uh, it was Columbus. Columbus. Um, you know, I felt like there was just a little bit more positivity that I've been talking about in terms of our buildup and creating chances. So to me, that was, uh, you know, while I had plenty to complain about, about individuals or whatever, I thought there was a little bit more to what we're doing going forward and creating some exciting chances, frankly, that should have been finished in both games. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the first game at Cincinnati, you know, Conway has a really uh, excellent chance early on. He's right in on goal. And um, to be honest with you, I was really disappointed how he went about finishing. should you have know, finished it. Yeah, yeah, he should have finished it, but he didn't give the goalkeeper anything, right? He just kind of shot it, and he telegraphed it. And, and he dragged um, his foot. It wasn't going to score no matter what. I mean, he hit it well, but, 
you know, if you watch Joseph Martinez trying to finish when he's in on goal, um, it's shifty. It's not clear where he's going. He opens up his hips. You don't know whether he's going far post or near post, right? He has the possibility of cutting it and going by the keeper. And Conway, despite being right in on goal, showed nothing of that. And to be honest with you, if, if you extend that to the, to the second game in Columbus, um, Lopez has a very similar chance in the second game and also hits it right at the keeper telegraph. So, um, you know, obviously two young players, you don't want to get on them. They don't, haven't been starting that much. But um, if you want to be a forward at the highest level, you cannot go about your finishing that way. And I'm not even talking about whether you score or not. I'm talking about just how you go about it. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things that stood out to me too, you know, while the fans out there probably are going to be disappointed in the finishing capabilities of Marcelino Moreno, Mm -hmm. I think in terms of him being somebody who's picking it up at midfield and making very good forward passes – and and just attacking that something has changed there where he's kind of found his feet a little bit in terms of him creating good buildup to create chances for the team and yeah I think he's been terrific and 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 not at all you know naive in the way he's going about it in that um you know even his long distance shots like he knows when you just try to haul off and smash it versus when you try to curl it. And, you know, it hasn't worked for him yet, but there's nothing about his game that says um, that he is, you know, naive or or, no, or wanting. And, you know, I, I can't imagine pulling him off the field and seeing what the product looks like. That's, to me, the the telltale of what does Atlanta United look like right now without Marcelino Moreno? And that, in my opinion is a very unfinished team. So as much as I wanted to scream at him, and I did on Saturday for not uh, doing better with his chances, and, he, you know, I think he'd be his own harsh critic on that. Um, I think, you know, he, he can pat him on himself on the back in terms of his effort and, and the buildup there. So I've heard some people say that, you know, Moreno had – so Moreno has clearly looked better in the last two games – and, you know, one that could be new coach. But um, the other aspect, of course, is Barco's at the Olympics. And some people, um, including the national broadcast, I think it was Stuart Holden. Um, uh, was it Stuart Holden or was it um, Taylor Twelman? Anyway, Last, one of those. The U.S. men's national team against Jamaica? No, no, no. In the, the Atlanta United national broadcast on ABC. Oh, I don't know. I think it was Twelman. Anyway, but the... Um, you know, they, they, they pointed this out um, as well. Right, um, that you know, Barco and Moreno um, are very similar players, and they tend to get in each other's way or in their space. I think that that's a cop out because yes, I agree that they're very similar players; they do similar things. But why can't they do similar things on either side of the field? Why can't you have a beautiful pairing of left and right? Yeah. So, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I I think. Again, it's a matter of more time in the field to prove whether there's a jam up in space or not. I mean, we haven't seen those guys on the field very much together to know whether (laughs) that's the truth or not. And it kind of goes back to, you know, the conversation we were just having with Jason in terms of if we brought on another forward like Almada uh, and that's jamming up the space some more. I I do think with the change of formation and having him sit just slightly behind Joseph and even Barco and Moreno in the center as well with – Lennon and 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 Bello on the the wide flanks and maybe just three in the back, uh, that that could work. Um, but 
you know, I, I think at the end of the day, if you have four talented players on the field like that, that's a game changer. They'll figure it out. Just give them two or three games to figure it out. Um, that's my opinion. Sure. You know, I worry about that in terms of the balance. I mean, that, you know, gets me into one of the things that I am ranting about. So one of the things, um, as Jason brought up in part one of the podcast, um, Heinze, I thought tactically was, um, very good at coaching the back, particularly early in the season, we were really well matched up out of the back. And that means, you know, what do we mean by that? Well, Matching up out of the back means that um, if there's a player 10, 15 yards ahead of the center backs who is getting the ball maybe slightly in behind or to the side of the defensive midfielder Sosa, the question is, what's the decision? Does the center back come forward and try to match up out of it? Or is the center back content to sit back saying, look, I don't want to vacate the space um, and give space to be well, have the ball played in behind me, and so I'm going to stay. So if you stay, obviously you give players a lot of space, and a good player with a lot of space can pick you apart. If you go, you can actually challenge for that ball and win for that ball, but then the question is how do you react behind it, right? And and the, the, the classic is a sort of pressure cover, where it's the guy stepping out to match up is the pressure, and then there has to be a cover. And one of the things just which wasn't, I don't think, happening under Heinze, but seemed to happen under Valentino. And I don't know whether it's the coaching or the just, you know, different time in the season. But a number of times, Alan Franco stepped up to match up out of the back. And Walks, who should have been moving over in to cover in behind him, stayed left. And what that did was create this huge pocket of space where Alan Franco went into um, to to match up, and for the goal that we gave up um, against um, Cincinnati, um, there was a runner out of midfield who ran right into that space. Walks like suddenly realized, oh, there's acres of space. I'm supposed to be over there. Tried to come over and was way too late to ever make the mistake, uh, to ever get over and, and make the play. Um, and so I noticed it several times before we gave up the goal that if you're going to come out and match up out of the back, the other center back or one of the outside backs has to fill in a little bit. Otherwise, there's a huge gap and a, a smart runner out of midfield is just going to take that. That happened, I don't know if you go back to our you know, old episodes on the podcast, but in the early days of DeBoer, we had, you know, we gave up a goal early in the DeBoer regime where we were really far matched up the field. And there was a guy ended up having a breakaway from midfield because of that, that nobody came over right. to cover him behind him. So um, I don't know why under Heinze it didn't seem tactically naive, but in the two games I saw it multiple times and I said, you know, that's going to cost us. And, and it it didn't get corrected in the second game against Columbus. We were still making that same mistake. Yeah. So what did you think about uh, Joseph's performance the last two games? I think that Joseph um, looked much closer to his old self. Um, you know, particularly in the second game where he started and went 90 minutes against Columbus. Um, he laid off a couple of balls 
um, that should have been goals, uh, where he was under immense pressure and found the open yeah. guy five yards next to him. Um, I think one of the ones was the the very early Mulraney shot. Yeah, like in the first minute and a yeah. half, right? <laughs> yeah, very early in the game. Yeah, but there was been... one later in the game the same way where, um, you know, he avoided pressure and quickly got it off his feet. And we haven't seen that. I mean, you know, people are expecting Joseph to be finishing on the end of things or whatever, but people forget how just how good he is on the ball and in those situations he managed to get the ball to the open player under pressure and that has not been happening up front. now I, I i agree with you and all that but one thing observing having gone to the game on saturday at the bends watching just when it was the open run of play he was sitting back in those instances where he would have been crashing the box before mm-hmm. and you know particularly you know I would think maybe that's fitness or just mindset. I don't know what it is to get back in that Viper mode of you got to be in the box. I mean, he was way behind the play a couple times. Mm-hmm. Like didn't want to be involved. And we had guys bombing down the left side and he was not, he was going to be too late if there was any sort of service. Okay. Um, definitely an observation. Now was nice to see him in the Cincinnati game. He had a really nice free, uh, free kick that, was going side netting, saved by the keeper for Cincinnati. I can't remember. Yeah, he tried to play, you know, instead of trying to hook it around the wall, he played to the keeper side, caught him, yeah. caught him leaning the other way and almost finished. Yeah, that was, that was, a, yeah, it was, I, I thought the commentators were, were harsh on that and that um, they were saying, oh, it was kind of right at the goalkeeper. And I'm like, no, he had him leaning. Yeah. It was almost a goal. Um, The other thing that I want to say though, and here's my big thing, right? Um, in um, the Cincinnati game, and, and you'll have to trust me, dear podcast listener, that I'm telling you the truth. Um, I started taking notes so I can and tell you things. But um, <laughs> so Raising the level here, Dave. I uh, know. <laughs> um, I said, defensively on corner kicks, we moved to a more zonal system that was just atrocious. Really, some of their most dangerous moments came from corners. And in the Cincinnati game, two or three times, because they were doing the zonal thing, on the weak side, on the back, um, there was a guy standing wide open, and it did not cost us. But I said, if we continue to do that, we are going to give up a goal. And sure enough, in the second game, Columbus, it's a corner kick, it's flicked on in the middle, and there is nobody covering him on the far post. And if you look at the way even that, that corner kick lined up, we lined up because of the zonal marking in, in the front, towards the front post. We lined up three against four marking up. And the one guy who was open never had anybody marking him, period. See, not, you're talking about the Columbus uh, corner kick that led yes. to a goal. Okay, so I was in the opposite end in the Mercedes-Benz when that went in. Yes. I went back and watched it on YouTube. My theory is completely wrong, uh, different than yours on, okay. on on why we left that goal. And it goes back to uh, what you would agree with as being the way to deal with corner kicks, and that's to get to the ball first. Yep. And do you know who had the opportunity to get to the ball first on that play? I'm going to guess it was walks, but I don't know. Not even close. Joseph Martinez ah. was, was right there. But no, Joseph Martinez at the front post. You he, mean on the, on the flick-on? He was on the flick-on okay. on the front post, which is where the ball came down to begin with, and Joseph should have gotten there. But 100%. that's fair, but that makes total sense to me. Right, so so 
you know, if you go back to the Tata regime, we man-marked, and then we had Joseph Martinez free in front, and that has always made sense to me. He's good at going after balls, yeah. and yes, he didn't win that ball, but he didn't. He wasn't even close to it. He but if you have didn't the even free put a shoulder, there, didn't put a shoulder into him or anything. That's fair, right? But so, so that's a that's a mistake. But the tactics, right? So the way they had it set up, they had two zonal guys up front where if you have to get to that ball, and if you don't, then the guy is wide open. And in this level of soccer, you cannot leave a guy absolutely unmarked off a corner kick. You just can't. Yeah, I agree with that. So, uh, you know, you have to trust me that I said in the the Columbus game that it was going to cost us. uh, Sorry, in the Cincinnati game that it was going to cost us. And sure enough, that's how we give up the goal in Columbus. Um, I have another... Let's hear it. I like notes because I, I have none. <laughs> um, Rob Valentino, um, which we'll talk about whether, you know, so again, I want full credit. I think the team has looked much better, particularly going forward. Um, and, you know, as I've always said, um, sometimes it's just, you know, naive to say, oh, we're just going to give the players more freedom to go forward. I don't think that's what he's done. So I give him credit that the, that the attacking player has looked more sophisticated we've had more overlap runs they've come from good places they've opened up the field that's great we get late in the game the substitutions mikey dobbs right which game cincy or columbus in columbus okay okay so you know late in the game we've got all the pressure kubo torres is not the guy it's not just Kubo Torres. I mean, yes, Kubo Torres is not the guy. But So that's the first mistake, right? So you're late in the game. You know they're going to have it packed in, right? And you bring on Kubo Torres, a guy who is just woeful in the air. I mean, even if you think that Kubo Torres is a good player, and obviously we're on record as saying he's not, but um, even if you think he's a good player, he's much better with the ball at his feet on the ground or going after, you know, balls along in the box along the ground he's never been good in the air and they're packed in they were clearly packing in right you're gonna get crosses in the last several minutes you have jackson, jackson conway, conway the guy who has shown that he can go in the air and get a blow and you know jurgen dom delivers a beautiful cross yeah. cubo torres goes after it comes nowhere close to it and I don't know whether Jackson Conway gets to that ball or not, but I'd much rather sure as heck have Conway going after the ball than Kubo Torres. Amen. What do you want me to say? I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then on top of this, right? Um, so in order to, uh, he brought off, in order to get an additional forward on the field, right? Um, he brought off a back. Right? That makes perfect sense to me. Right. You're going after the game. They're not pushing forward. It's fine to bring off a back and, uh, and, and, and bring on a forward. He brings off Hernandez. And, you know, Hernandez hasn't played. Um, Ronald Hernandez hasn't played as many minutes. So, you know, fair enough. You could think he's tiring. I happen to think that he was really great um, yeah. in the game. And is really impressive, which, gets, which we'll get to my point in a second. Early in the game, even though he's a right footer, getting down the wings, he feel seemed very comfortable making crosses with his left foot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but instead, so what he does instead of either removing a center back or removing Hernandez and moving one of the center backs to the left, he takes Brooks Lennon, 
the guy who's been sending in beautiful crosses the entire game, and he moves him over to the left side. So now you no longer have Brooks Lennon crossing, who's been the best crosser on the team, and he was bombing down the left side. We found him, I counted four times in the last seven or eight minutes, where he was in behind the defenders. We found him with the ball, and he didn't even try to serve it with his left foot because, of course, he's not left-footed. Yeah. And instead, he cut it back, never served it, which is atrocious. How in the last seven minutes do you take Brooks Lennon, the right-footed guy who can deliver a great ball, and move him over to left where he no longer can deliver a good ball, and on top of that is going to kill all momentum because he's not even willing to try crossing with his left foot. Yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned that now since I was in the left corner uh, on the attacking side and, and was like, oh, why is Lennon on this side? I, I noticed that in the last 10 minutes or so of the game that they made that shift. And, and yeah, he did not get crosses in with his left foot. No. I mean, and it goes to the, my point where I've been making, you know, more generally – you know, which is about inverted wingers, right? So we've been playing, even in this game, we had Mulraney as an inverted winger. When you have, I'm against inverted wingers in general because I think that, you know, when you naturally push out wide, you create more space. But, you know, for example, Marcelino Moreno is an inverted winger playing on the left side and though he's right-footed. That makes perfect sense to me because he's got really good ball skills. He's good in a type space. He can pick out a pass. So when he cuts into the middle, he's now in a really dangerous spot to right. do things. When you have a guy, Mulraney, who, you know, he is uh, very strong, very fast, but his ball skills in tight space and his passing in tight space, you wouldn't say is his strength. Oh, but Dave, what about that one stroke of luck where he had that crazy thing in the box where he got it through and we scored? Yeah, but I know, but, but I, I agree with you. I'm just, I'm just for the podcast listeners out there. So you play him as an inverted winger. And instead of him going out wide where he can use his pace and strength, he's cutting it in the middle and he's losing the ball like left and right. I don't know how many attacks he had the guy one-on-one. -on -one, and if he had been on the left side, he would have pushed it by him and used his strength and speed. And instead, he's coming into the middle and the whole attack is, is wrong. So if you're going to play an inverted winger, please give me a player who is good with the ball at his feet and can deliver a pass and, and you know is good in traffic. Who is that on our team? Well, it's a Barco, it's a Moreno. They're perfectly fine as inverted yeah. wingers, and they've shown that over and over. But if you got a pacey, you know, strength guy, you know, a la Brooks Lennon, you know, more of a pace, although Brooks Lennon does have pretty Jürgen good ball skills. Jurgen Dom, um, you know, please Bellow. do not play him inverted. Right, because yeah, Bello is going to push the ball by you with pace and try to get to the end line, and it works because he's left footed. He gets to the left end line. He's delivering a beautiful ball, right? Um, and he's not closing the space because as a left footer bombing down the left side, he's opening up the space for us. So please, if you're going to play an inverted winger, before you decide to do it in all your you know overthinking the tactics, please do not make it a guy who's pacey and strong and should be pushing the ball by someone. I love it. I think that was an ATL on fire rant there from Dave Katz. And uh, what else do your notes have to say? It seems like they're full of good stuff. <laughs> That's more or less, you know, these are the things that I, I can go on. But I think those are the big things that I wanted to touch upon. So I guess my question to you is, um, you know, and, and I would actually say the same thing about Machop Chol, right, who looks like a guy who's pacey and strong 
and and does no business playing it as an inverted winger, yeah. right? Should be on the side where where he goes and he's ready to cross the ball. Anyway, um, my what I wanted to ask you about is okay, you know, I guess I'm on the record as saying Rob Valentino strong in terms of has created more opportunities for us. Um, I felt like the team has been tactically naive in the back, particularly on corners, um, and the substitution in the end was pretty woeful. Yeah, I, I got to agree. I think those, those subs at the end, I mean, I, I think I was cussing on the sideline, <laughs> mainly because of Kubo. But um, There's a first for everything, Mikey Dobbs. But, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of, of, of those subs, um, particularly when you're on the front foot at the end. And, in fact, like – Leaving Joseph on, letting letting him get back to full uh, match fitness, I would have rather seen in in a Mercedes Benz that Benz that's fully open to get that moment of joy that you were talking about. Right. The odds are Joseph's going to give that give that to us even over Jackson Conway. Frankly, sure. Um, that's my opinion. Is as far as just not taking him off the field, I'd rather just see him get ninety minutes and get back up to uh, you know full full fitness. Fair. Um... So, but overall, so I would, you know, when we, when we talked about it, you know, Rob Valentino on the podcast, you know, would he be naive? Um, certainly he's much more of a player's manager. The players seemed yeah. instantly happier. Um, and that may in of itself accounted for what we're doing offensively. But um, I liked certain things. I like the fact that we're still trying to match up out of the back. I like the actual movement up front. The timing looked pretty good. So overall tactics, pretty good. But there were elements of it that seemed very naive. You think we can get the win over Orlando on Friday? Um, it's going to be a tough game. Orlando obviously is, um, you know, <laughs> for their history, they are finally a well-coached team, yeah. right? They get Pereira who's a terrific coach in MLS, who had a history of being a terrific coach. And it's amazing. You can go to Orlando, a team that was just woeful, woeful, woeful. They didn't really upgrade the players much at all. They got a couple of you know new players, but it wasn't a huge yeah. change. The first year Nani was there, he was not effective, and he seems to be a Right, real... you get a good coach, and suddenly he's you know a baller. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, this is an interesting thing when we were talking about our next coach, right? A guy like Pereira or Orlando... You know, talk about sticking it to him. If we go in and just steal Orlando's coach, he would be great here. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. So what else? International play. We've got the Gold Cup. We've got Miles Robinson, who's gotten a lot of minutes. In, right. In the gold, what have you thought Cup. of him so far? Uh, I think he has done very well defensively. I mean, again, his man-on-man -man marking um, is always strong, even when you – have your you know heart up in your throat because he's almost too loose and uh at the beginning but recovers i mean he continues to do that over and over again i don't know how long that'll last him as he gets a little older to put himself in those types of positions um but i think it's fair to say some of his particularly in the last game in, in jamaica um i don't know if it was a trend but his his forward passing was lacking, even though yeah, edit, he gave up a number of passes that just yeah. weren't great. In Atlanta United, though, I think he's actually been quite good at some of his forward passes. So I feel like in the international moments, not so good. In some of the Atlanta United games, I think he's had some good balls over the top that I've seen that have it mm -hmm. put put us in, in a good position. But I would say, you know, his vision, though, in terms of making sure he makes a, a pass that can't be read is going to be a part of his game he needs to continue to develop. 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly think the rumors that he was willful passing the ball out of the back are extremely exaggerated. Yeah. He can certainly knock a ball and um you know, but he does at a few moments try to force occasional balls. In, in fairness to him, when he's done it, um, it hasn't really been out of the back. It's been more in the middle of the field yeah. going towards the front. So, you know, there it's probably not as bad. You're trying to, to push on and do something, you know, successful. Um, so I don't have a huge problem with that. I thought in the Gold Cup, his first match, um, I thought he was just okay. The The next match is um, in the quarterfinal versus Jamaica. I thought he was excellent. Um, I think it was in Canada. He was man of the match. Um so, yeah, he looks to me like you know overall, he's one of the few players so far yeah. who I've say has come out as 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 real positive. I hundred percent agree, and I almost feel like some of the reason that he is not making those, you know, like we saw in the game against Jamaica, kind of missing those forward passes. He's been so focused at doing being a rock in the back and almost being kind of that, um, you, you know free safety, if you will, when the team messes up, he was there to save them over and over again because of his speed, because of his coolness and calmness. I mean, that that track back he had where he, you know, got back and then the guy cut in and he just mm-hmm. stopped, stopped on a dime and just mm-hmm. put it, didn't do anything stupid, put his leg out and just... Yeah, no terrible challenge, no penalty kick. That was very composed. Late in the game. Very composed. Yeah, really important. Um, but I, I I think that there is almost a part of his game that is too reserved mm. in terms of going forward. Like he seems very much uh, like you don't ever see him. But he scored the goal coming forward on the corner. Right yeah, no, the first he, he, he's always great on corners. Yeah, always great on corners on both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with that. But no, in terms of like open free play, mm. he is very content on never taking a risk of getting out of that position where he is playing. So, you know, there is a, a other side of the coin of not being prepared to be the free safety, if you will, when uh, when it gets released the other direction. It's but- interesting you say that because I don't feel like he's tactically unprepared. I have felt that when he has ended up where you feel like that, where he's scrambling to get back, it's because he was moving over to cover for someone else initially and then had to get back to his own spot. No, no. I think what I'm saying, I think you're misinterpreting. What I'm saying is even under the calmness of play, Mm -hmm. of possession, that he's not pushing up forward enough Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. because he knows his strength is sitting back and being the hero when things kind of crumble. I see. I, I think that it would do him justice to read the game and know when it's his chance to maybe get a little bit more involved going forward. Fair. I mean, it's fair. I mean, he's really good with the ball at his feet. Yeah, he is. He'd love to see. Uh, ultimately, if if our pairing long-term, you know, it's interesting. We're talking to Jason uh, Longshore about, um, you know, our, our backs, and he was saying, you know, walks could be a guy here for a long time. You know, sure, but it seems to me still, even despite the struggles, um, that it's Robinson and Franco who are the center back pairing, not walks. Yeah. There's been a, in, on the social media stuff, there's been a lot of fanfare for walks um, because I, I do think he has elevated his game. This but if year, you but watch the ball, he looks great, right? That's the thing. When you yes. watch the ball, he looks great. He makes, you know, plays on the winner. If you watch him off the ball, you're, you're jumping he looks all over terrible. Me. I agree with you. I'm, I'm just trying to open it, open you up to, to, yeah. 
Yes. Sorry, Mikey Dobbs. What, what are <laughs> what are the continued flaws of, of Anton Walks for the, the podcast listeners that might only see that side of his game, which I agree, I think he, he does very well on some of that man-on-man stuff that's very one-dimensional. But when it comes to, again, reading the game, you've already talked about it, what what do you expect his role to be if you were the coach on the team? Like, what would you want his role to be? Um, I mean, obviously, I would have him as the backup center back, and I think that's a very capable, you know, to give somebody to give walks uh, to give um, Franco or um, Robinson, you know, twenty minutes at a game we're leading, or you know, to bring him into rotation to keep those guys fresh for sure. Uh, and what I would say to him, you know, if I were trying to coach him, is look, you know, you have got to be moving um, before the ball is played against us, you know, attacking wise. Um, The number of times that he is standing until very late and reacting to the play is, is is too high. I saw it in either the Cincinnati game or the Columbus game where there was like a ball that was just kind of floating in the air and he was flat footed and then he reacted and he could have gotten to the ball. Yeah. Um, And it was just one of those things where it's just, again, not having awareness of what's, what's happening. Um, But, Alan Franco, what are your thoughts with a few more minutes in the last couple of games of him on the field? Uh, I think he's getting better. He's settling. Um, And you can see underneath it all that he's got some real ability. Um, Still not completely settled. Still has a couple of moments where, you know, he was getting on himself a little bit in the Cincinnati game where he was perfectly positioned and a couple of times like the ball went through his legs once or whatever. It just didn't quite work. And you were like, oh, Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that um, he's in the right spot. He's reading it. Um, and even, you know, you it are, you know, you could potentially blame the goal um, on him in, in the, in the Cincinnati game because he's so pulled out of position, but presumably that's what they want. They want him matching up. And so in my in that case, it was not his problem. It's, it's the players who failed to fill in behind him. That was yeah. the fault. Dave, anything else? What do we want to get to? Uh, well, I was going to say we were talking about Gold Cup, and, um, you know, clearly Brad Guzon's international career is over. Right. Right. I mean, when, no when in this MLS thing, he's not even being rotated in to give a game or whatever. I mean, he is clearly the backup amongst the backup, you know, set yeah. of players. So well, I thought the, was it Turner? Yeah. I thought he was pretty strong. I don't know. What was your take on him? Yeah, he's been good. Uh, America's always had terrific goalkeepers. I, yeah. I still think that Zach Steffen is clearly the number one. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's sad, you know, because you're like, look, um, and in some respects, I don't get it, right? You know, so, um, you know, you know, if you're Burhalter, right, why bring in Guzan, who's towards the end of his career, um, in order to just, you know, clearly sit there. I mean, you could argue maybe his job there is to is to train Turner and to give him advice or whatever, yeah. but that's awfully tough to take a guy away from the MLS team during the middle of the season just to be a, um, you know, um, a guiding veteran to a younger player. And the other side of the coin, we've had Alec Kahn step in as a goalkeeper for Atlanta United due, due mm-hmm. to, to his... I think um, 
we certainly got away with a lot with his <laughs> with his footwork where he was dicey three or four times in mm-hmm. I don't know if it was the Cincinnati game, I think particularly where that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but in talking to a, a, a friend and listener of the show, uh, you know, I, I was saying that I think the you know, the real time game speed of someone who hasn't played an MLS game and it's been a been a while since Alec Khan. First of all, I think it's can. But anyway, can't Alex ahead. can thank you. I, I'm always open to Alec can. I think it's sort of pronounced con and spelled can. But anyway, go ahead. Which, sorry. What's the Star Trek one? <laughs> is it con? Uh, yeah, can? I think that's maybe, con. Maybe that's this where my is, head's at. Yeah, right. Tricky. Um, no, it's can in this case. Go ahead. But no, I think you know I give him a little bit of runway with the fact that he hasn't played a full speed MLS game and is playing with the twos, which is just a different level of pressure, and so. Luckily, he did not give up a goal with one of his kind of sloppy touches and whatnot. But I would—he certainly doesn't panic. Yeah, he <laughs> he, d- he didn't panic, and uh, and nothing happened. So well, you honestly, you know, so I, I'm actually higher on him than that. I think that honestly, he showed once again that he's a terrific shot stopper. Right. Um, he can really dominate the box. Um, yeah, he took too long on a number of balls, but he didn't get caught on it. Um, so he's obviously, you know, Brad Guzon is, 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 we're spoiled. He's got two good feet, um, and is great with the ball at his feet. Um, but you know, can looks to me like he should be starting somewhere in the MLS. Um, he looks that good to me. The only thing that I felt about can that I thought was not so great is there were a few times where there was a long ball put through that he could have come out and just cleared it and knocked it out of bounds. And he was sitting, you know, in his six-yard box, right. not willing to come for that ball. And I'm like, look, you know, in the modern game where you're pressing up, particularly, again, if you're going to match up out of the back, a ball way over the top has got to be the goalkeepers. Yeah, I agree with that as well. So we've, we've run around the horn here pretty well. Yeah, I think we've covered it all. We have covered it all. Do you think the U.S. is uh, going to make it to the finals against Mexico, assuming Mexico beats, beats Canada? Yeah, we play. You know, it's interesting Qatar. because. Cutter. Well, you know, the interesting thing is when um, long time ago when, when I thought it was um, Qatar and all the people said, no, 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 it's Cutter, it's Cutter, even when they announced it as the World Cup is Cutter. And it seems to me that. Um, based on the fact that they're hosting the World Cup, um, people have decided that uh, Americans don't want to say it as Qatar. And so they're like, ah, heck with it. It's Qatar, or or Qatar, including, I think, and I might be wrong about this. You can go back on the old Google machine. Um, I think that, so Qatar has its own airline, and I think they used to say Cutter in the commercials, and it now says Qatar. I know that it now says Qatar. I've seen the commercials during the Olympics, and okay. it says Qatar Airlines. But I think they used to call it Cutter Airlines. And they're just like, well, Americans don't want that, so we'll just go with whatever they want to call it us. So there is no wrong answer is what I'm hearing. Yeah, maybe not. Alex Khan, <laughs> Alex Can, Cutter, <laughs> Qatar. It's my kind of exam when all answers are correct. <laughs> Mikey Dobbs, you might have, you know, could have killed it in school bar. <sighs> Never. <laughs> Never. Well, I think that's a wrap. Yes. I think we had a great podcast. I uh, hope everybody enjoyed the uh, insight from Jason Longshore. That was a treat. And um, yep. 
Hope to have him back on the show. Hope that you guys tune back in. Again, we are on all the major podcast platforms and now on YouTube as well. So tune in, subscribe, tell a friend. So long. Ciao.